and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's one thing to see, eat with, and pray for our neighbors, but share the gospel with them? Now it gets complicated. Or does it? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, Neighboring Where You Live, with this message entitled, Share the Gospel with Your Neighbor, which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. got your Bibles, turn with me if you would to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, This week we are continuing in the series that I mentioned just a few moments ago called Neighboring Where You Live. And each week we've been looking at these two basic questions. Who does Jesus say your neighbor is? And how does Jesus call you to love them? And this week is no exception. We're coming back to those same two questions, but we are circling the one reality that undergirds everything else. The thing that is of first importance, the thing that matters more than anything else in the world, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality that God, in mercy and in love, made himself our neighbor in the person of his son. Let's read this text together, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you are God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Lord, we exist because you spoke us into being. And Lord, our hope, our lives, they depend upon you, whether we admit that or not. And Lord, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would uh, do a work in our hearts. Through your spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, that we would hear the gospel and not just hear it as, as information to be taken from this room and processed later, but Lord, we would hear it as the good news it actually is. That Lord, you would take the dead and you would make them alive as you do so well and so often in your Son. And we pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, there was this quote that had a lot of traction with a bunch of my friends. It was a quote that I, at the time, really liked. I had it on my Facebook wall for a period. And it was this quote that a lot of people use, and I still hear it used pretty frequently, because it, it seems it kind of sets you apart as a compassionate Christian. This quote 
that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, that 12th century monk that says this, preach the gospel always, if necessary, if necessary, use words. Now, that's a great quote. It's pithy, it's memorable, it's well put together, and I think the intention behind it is actually a great one. Because there is truth to the fact that we don't want to be a people who just proclaim the word. We want to be a people whose lives reflect that word, don't we? I mean, otherwise we would be hypocrites. Otherwise what we would say would have no actual veracity. But there are some problems with this quote. The first one is the historical one. As a history nerd, this one matters to me, and so you're going to get to hear about it. The first one's this. St. Francis of Assisi is never in any place recorded as actually having said that quote. And not only is there no record of him ever having said it, but based on what we do know about his life, it's actually in opposition to his entire life and ministry. St. Francis of Assisi was a man who started an order of monks called the Franciscans who took three lifelong vows. Poverty, prayer, and guess what the third one is? Preaching the word. St. Francis was a guy who spent his life traveling from village to village to village, sometimes five a day, so that he could go stand in the center of the village and preach the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he would travel along the roads, he took literally what Mark 16 says, that you're to preach the gospel to the whole creation, and so he preached sermons to birds, because he's a little bit loopy. (laughs) During the Crusades, this time when the Muslim world and the Christian world were absolutely at each other's throats, when the tensions could not have been higher, St. Francis decided that what that time needed was for him to go by himself to Egypt, to walk into the court of the sultan, and then to proclaim the gospel, thinking if he hears this, surely he will be converted, and then we can end this war. It didn't work, but the sultan didn't kill him either, because I think he was a little bit shocked that this guy would be this bold. For St. Francis of Assisi, there was no such thing as a gospel apart from the word. Because what's the gospel? It's not something you live. The gospel is the announcement of good news. You see it in Jesus. In the life of Jesus, there is this intimate marriage between word and deed. In the text we looked at last week in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has just spent time with this crowd. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. Then he, in the middle of the night, goes out to a desolate place to pray. But why does he go? To prepare himself to do what? To preach the good news of God's kingdom that has come in his person. The proclamation of the word is central to the life and the mission of Jesus. I mean, just think, who is Jesus? John says he's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the one who came into this world, not just to serve us with his life, but to serve us with his words. To make known to us things that were hidden, things that we never could have imagined about God, things we never could have known unless God in his mercy through his son revealed them to us. And it's that word that Jesus then goes and entrusts his disciples. When he sends them out on their first forays into ministry, he sends them not just to heal the sick and to cast out demons, he sends them to do what? To preach the gospel of the kingdom. 
When Jesus has died and then been raised to new life and he meets with his disciples again before he ascends into heaven, what does he tell them? Every one of the Gospels has some form of the same account, that they are to go into all the world and do what? Proclaim the Gospel. It's everywhere. This word of God's saving work in the person of Jesus Christ. And you find it yet again here in this text with Paul. Paul is writing to a church that's lost the script. He's writing to a church that he has ministered to, a church that he loves, a church that he has seen fruit in, but a church that is in danger of letting go the one thing that matters more than anything else, the thing that is of first importance, the gospel Paul preached to them. And Paul is saying to this church, hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and in love, one more time, he is sharing the gospel with them. He says to the church in Corinth and to the church today, hear this gospel and hear it afresh. In verse 1, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. I would have you hear again the thing I've told you before. Hear it again. Don't forget what this is. Do not lose track of this. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And what is this gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, this is what the gospel is. This is the thing you cannot afford to miss, you cannot lose hold of, the thing that is of first importance. And notice what the gospel is not. It is not about us. He mentions four things that matter. There is one who died, there is one who was buried, there is one who was raised, and there is one who has appeared. And notice this, you are not that person. The gospel is all about one person and one person only, and that is Jesus Christ. He says it is Jesus, the Christ, who died for sins and was raised from death to life, and he says this curious little phrase that we shouldn't skip past, according to the Scriptures. Paul's not referring to just a verse here or there that Jesus happened to fulfill. As the rest of the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 makes very, very clear, Paul, he is looking at a story that starts in Genesis 1 to 3 with the creation and the fall of man in the garden and culminates with the arrival of Jesus, the second Adam. 
He's looking at the entire redemptive arc of Scripture, and he is saying every single bit of it, it has reached its fulfillment here. This is God's answer to our broken world. This past month, I know that none of us here could have probably missed this. You'd have to be living under a rock not to have heard what has happened, but over this past month, we watched our country wage a war over the Supreme Court. We saw people at each other's throats. As a nation, we found ourselves wrestling with questions of innocence and guilt, asking ourselves about the nature of sexual assault, and wondering what it means to have the burden of proof. And we found people on both sides of the aisle who were willing to take people made in the image of God and then grind them up in the gears of their quest for personal power. Both sides. This moment in our history where I don't think any of us walked away and said, man, I feel super clean after that. But there's one thing I think that everyone involved and everyone in this room can agree on. This is not the way it is supposed to be nor is it the way we want it to be. That's a feeling that pervades every corner of this world, doesn't it? It's the feeling that we have every time we open up our phones and we see yet another news alert of another mass shooting. It's what we feel when we see a photo of a child covered in blood running from yet another terrorist attack upon a crowd. It's the feeling we have when you walk into work and you find yourself staring in the face of someone that you know has betrayed you and someone you know has worked to undermine you behind your back. And it is a feeling that covers not just things outside of you, but even, even yourself. Because we all feel in our very bones that not only is this world not the way it's supposed to be, but neither are we. We are a people who wrestle with shame and with guilt and with fear and with doubt, who hide who we really are and pretend to be something that we are not because deep down inside we know that something is not right, something is wrong, something needs to be fixed. And what Paul says is Genesis 1 to 3 is the story that makes sense of your world. There's a reason you feel as though this is not the way it's supposed to be, because it's not. God created the heavens and the earth, everything that was in it, he made it good and glorious and beautiful. And he created man in his image to dwell in the very midst of it, to share in fellowship with him, to bring his rule and his reign to bear on every single portion of creation, and he's told him that everything is yours except for one thing. One tree. One tree, the fruit of which you may not eat, and if you do, you will surely die. And man, seeing that tree and hearing the whisper of the serpent, telling them that you will not surely die, surely there is life in that tree, and surely God is withholding something good from you. Man decided that what that tree held, it was not death, it was life. That obedience to God would actually be what death was. And so they went to the tree and they took the fruit and they ate it. 
And in that sin, death came, and it is a death that has overflowed and has consumed every square inch of this earth, including you and me. It is a death into which we are born. It is a death in which we live. And it is a death that will ultimately take every single one of us and reduce us to dust. A spiritual death where we are dead to the one for whom we were made. And a physical death where these bodies that he has given us slowly decay and then fall away. And it is a death from which none of us can escape in our own power or in our own strength. That's the story of the scriptures. But in the very midst of all that hopelessness, that story of loss, of sin, and of death, there is in the very beginning of the story also a promise of God that from the seed of the woman would come one who would take the serpent and the sin and the death that he brought into the world and would eradicate it completely. This promise of one who would come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one who would be from the tribe of Judah and the line of David, one who would be set apart by God, the Lord's anointed, one that in the New Testament you see called the Christ, a king who would bring God's rule and reign to bear in this world in a way that Adam was supposed to but never actually did, who would come into the wilderness and the brokenness of this fallen place and who would turn the desert into a place of fruitfulness and flourishing and life and peace and justice. This promise of one who would come, of blood that would be shed, that would actually accomplish with all the blood of all the animals and all the sacrifices over all those years in the temple always pointed to but could never actually do and bring about the forgiveness of sins. Of one promised in Isaiah 53, a righteous one who would stand in the place of sinners and would bear their sins on his shoulders and die the death they should have died but who would somehow mysteriously in that same text live again and see the very people that he had saved and received from his father an inheritance. A savior promised in Ezekiel 36 and 37 who would bring the forgiveness of sins, but who would also take the dead, the bones lying on the ground, and he would make them come alive. Paul, Paul is saying, the one in whom all those promises find their yes, the one in whom all those threads come together in perfect unity, the second Adam who remakes everything that the first Adam broke, he has come. Notice what he says. It's not Jesus who died, it's the Christ He's saying the promised one, the anointed one, the one that God foretold from the very moment of the fall. He has come and he has died for your sin and for mine. Not a metaphorical death, but a real one. And not only did he die in our place and for our sins as the scriptures foretold, but God the Father raised him. And we know this because we've seen him. And not just a few of us. Not just this tiny batch of people who could have had some bad brownies at a party. 
He's saying Peter saw him. All the disciples saw him, the 500. They saw him. Some of them have died, but the ones who were alive, you can talk to them. They touched him. They heard him. James, his brother, a man who in life did not believe that his brother was actually the Christ. He was not a follower of Jesus. But then something crazy happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. Suddenly James, the one who did not believe his brother, suddenly he's preaching about his brother. And he becomes a leader of the church. Now I don't know about you, but the only thing that would get me to say that my brother is the son of God is if I've seen him come to life. (laughs) And then Paul says he appeared not just to them, he appears to one untimely born, he appeared to me. He's saying, here he is. The one who crushes the serpent's head, the one who rescues us from sin and death, who frees us from the thing from which we could not free ourselves. He has come. The gospel is the bad news of a first Adam who carries the world into sin and death, and it is the good news of a second Adam who in Jesus carries it out into his resurrection life. And while the gospel is not about you, and it's not about me, here's what makes that news so good. It is for you and for me. Jesus died for what? For our sins. This is a death and a resurrection that is not apart from us. It is a death and resurrection in which we share. In Romans 6, Paul says when Jesus died, if you were among his people, you died with him. Your sins went into the tomb with him. And when he was raised to life, you were raised with him and your sins were left behind. And that's where they stay. And you were raised not just into the hope of a physical resurrection when your decayed body will be made whole and made immortal and perfect, even as Jesus is, never to die again. But he has raised you into a spiritual life which you enjoy even now. Where hearts that were once dead to God are now alive to him and those who were created for fellowship with him once more have it. Paul says this is the gospel. Hear it, and in hearing it, believe the gospel. Paul says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Hear it again. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It has saved you once for all, and it is saving you still. Preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that will come when Jesus returns. But catch this, if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Paul is looking at a church that he loves dearly and he is saying to them, the gospel is good news, but it does you no good if you simply nod your head at it. It's a word that's not just to be heard. It's a word that is to be believed. A word that is to be held fast to. A word upon which you are to build your life. A word that is to consume every single thing that you are. Not, don't just hear this word. Believe it. 
unless you will be revealed to be one of those who believed in vain. When I was a kid, my dad was really into cycling, and he would do these 100 and 150-mile bike races. And because that was his hobby, he wanted my brother and my sister and I to share in that. So he would take us on bike rides, usually shorter ones because we were little kids. Uh, But one of the things he really loved doing was taking me and my brother and my sister to these trails where you could ride mountain bikes. And I remember as an elementary school kid, my dad taking me to one of these trails. Uh, We were there, uh, just he and I, and we were going up and down these hills. And every time he would go to the top, my dad, because he loved me, he would shout back instructions. Caleb, when you get to the top, and you start to go down, make sure you've slowed down enough because that curve is going to be sharp and otherwise you'll fall. Caleb, there's a root that's coming up up ahead. If you hit it, you might flip off of your bike. Caleb, there's a hole up here. Avoid the hole. And I would hear these words. I would comprehend them and I would go, okay, and I would obey them. I would go up the hill. I would slow down at the bottom. I would make sure I took the curve carefully. I would look at the root and go around the root. But as an elementary school kid, after a bit, I started going, you know, I'm not falling off my bike. I'm, I'm pretty mature. I seem to be handling this just fine. Maybe I'll go a little faster next time he says when I go around that corner to slow down. Maybe I'll go right at that route and then I'll jump over it because I'm that cool. And then we came to a hill. And my dad got to the top of this hill and as he's sitting at the top, he goes, Caleb, go right. Stay to the right. Don't go left. And then he went over the side and I heard that. It went into my ears. I comprehended it. But as I started going up the hill, I took my handlebars and I went left. And when I got to the top of the hill, I found out why my father had said to go right. To the right was a hill that was steep, but allowed you to steadily and safely descend to the bottom. To the left the path I chose, was a straight drop-off. And by the time I realized that, I was already over the edge. And I was flying over my handlebars, and my bike was nowhere to be seen. And the next thing I knew, I was lying on the ground in a puddle of tears and scraped elbows and scraped knees. I heard my father, but I didn't believe him. Paul says... It's the same with the gospel. This is a word not just to be heard. It's a word to be believed and to be believed with every single thing that you possess. Jesus is the bread of life, but bread does you no good unless you eat it. This is the word upon which you build your life. This is the rock that is not moved by the storm. This is the one thing that matters most of all, the word you are to hear and to believe. And Paul, he doesn't just call us to that kind of faith. Paul exemplifies it. You see this in verses 8 to 11. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, and we're going to come back to that phrase, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know, we are blessed to live in an era where we have 
incredible Bible translations. But if there is one thing that we kind of do when we translate is we tend to tone down certain things because we don't want to offend. That happens in this text where it says, last of all is to one untimely born. In the Greek, in the extra-biblical sources where this shows up, that is almost always translated like this. It is a reference to an aborted fetus. Paul is saying, I am one who should be dead. Breath should never have entered my lungs. But somehow, mysteriously, graciously, gloriously, God has made me alive. He took a man who was trying to strike a blow at the very heart of God by attacking the very people that he loved. And yet, when I struck that heart, he did not respond with condemnation. He did not respond with death. He responded with a word of grace. Jesus appeared to me. And it is a grace that has overwhelmed me. It is a grace that has consumed me. And to a people who are in danger of believing in vain, notice what he says. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's saying, this gospel, this news, I have staked everything I have on this. I risk not just my possessions, not just my comfort, I risk my very life because I know to be true that Jesus Christ died and was raised and he raises me with him. And there is nothing in this world more valuable than that. The gospel is good news, not just to be heard. It is news that is to be believed. And when it is believed, it is news to share. Four times in this text, Paul says that I and the church, we have preached this gospel and we have declared this gospel. In verse 11, he says, whether it is I or they, we preach We preached to you before, we preach it now, and we will preach it to the end. We preach this gospel. And in writing this letter, what is Paul doing? Paul is once again coming to these people that he loves, and he's saying, I want you to hear it again. This is the gospel. And why does he share it with them? Because he loves them, and he knows they cannot be saved apart from this news, but also because for Paul, he has discovered something that he knows to be gloriously good news. What do you do when you find good news? I went to the University of Georgia for college, and yesterday was a painful day for me. And I love my school. It was the place that I needed to be. The Lord brought me there, but When I was in high school, that was not the school that I wanted to go to, nor was it the place I thought I would go to. I had a list, as most high school students do who are applying to colleges, of of schools that kind of went across a spectrum. On the one end, I had the schools that I considered my safety schools, those ones that I was sure, 100% sure I was going to get into. The ones that in case everything else went wrong, I could go there. And then there was the schools in the middle, the ones where you were pretty sure you were going to get in, but there was a chance things could go wonky. You might get the wrong admissions director reading your essay. And then there was the schools 
that were a stretch. The ones that if you got in, it would be a miracle akin to God raising the dead. And I had schools that ran that entire spectrum. Well, after I applied to these schools, a few months started to go by, and there began to be in the mail these letters that would come that said if you'd been accepted or if you'd been rejected. Well, one day, I was sitting at my parents' computer, and I was trying to to get the internet running, which if you remember those days, this was the days where you had dial-up, and you would literally hear this tone, and you were terrified that someone in some other part of the house would pick up a phone and call somebody, and the whole thing would fall apart, but you were hoping you could get on the internet. And I was trying to get onto my email, and while I'm doing this, my mom, she is getting into her van, and she's raising the garage door, and she's preparing to leave to go run an errand. Well, as she backs down the driveway, suddenly the internet goes through, and my inbox opens, and there in my inbox is an email from a college, one of the ones that was a stretch. And I thought that was weird. I was expecting letters, not an email. That was not a thing at the time. So I clicked on the email to see what it said, and all I got through was the first line. It said, congratulations, you have been accepted into, and the next thing I knew, I was out of my chair, and I was flinging the front door open, and I was sprinting after my mom's van, waving my arms, and screaming like a madman. I got in, I got in, I got in, because to me, it was a miracle. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, it was the most astonishing thing that up to that point had happened in my life and I was ecstatic and I didn't care who saw it or how stupid I looked because I had good news. When I proposed to Mallory and she shocked me and said yes, I literally had to be told by her, stop telling people until I get to tell my family. <laughs> Because what do you do when you have good news? You don't stuff it in your back pocket. Good news is something that when you have it, if you're not going to share it, you have to fight it back, don't you? You have to shove it down. It is it just it wants to burst out. You can't hold it in. When Jesus encounters people in the Gospels, you see this pattern happen over and over again. Jesus will heal someone. Jesus will minister to someone. And then he'll say to them, hey, don't tell anyone about this just yet. The time's not right. And then what does that person always do? They sprint outside and they tell everybody. Because in Jesus, they have met one who is incredibly, gloriously good news. I wonder sometimes... If for so many of us, and I'm including myself here, if sometimes we forget what good news we have. If maybe something that should be perpetually astonishing has grown stale. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God against whom we have rebelled, the God who so loved us that he sent into this world his son to save sinners. He has come in Jesus. He has died for our sins. He has risen again, and he carries us into his resurrection life. That's what we have. It is the promise, not just that our lives are restored, but that every single broken thing one day will be. And it is good news that is available not just to you and me, but to any who believe. 
It's the news that the church has declared and received and declared and received across the ages. It's the news that swept up Paul and Peter and the apostles and the 500 and now sweeps up you and me. And it is the news that God himself has entrusted us to share so that there would be others who would share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Paul would say to you and to me, Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and in love, share the gospel, even as Jesus Christ shared himself with us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we have a God who bent the heavens and came down to save us out of our misery. A God who in mercy was willing to lay down even his own life for our sake and for our sins. And Lord, we ask through your spirit, let this gospel not just be something we hear, but may it be something that we believe and believe with everything that we possess. And as those who have been caught up in this good news, may it be something that flows from us as the joyous proclamation that it really is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.